came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 10th of August 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And this week our special guest is Dr Alice Gorman from Flinders University in South Australia and she's a member of the Advisory Council of the Space Industry Association of Australia. And that's followed by Dr Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. And as usual, Ian will also tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky, and I'll be giving a brief news roundup as usual. So let's cross to Adelaide in Australia for today's show. Hello, Alice. Good morning, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Dr. Alice Gorman, who is a space archaeologist and senior lecturer at the Department of Archaeology, Flinders University in South Australia. She's a member of the Advisory Council of the Space Industry Association of Australia. Tell us about where you grew up as a child, please, Ellis. Tell us about your school days and what prompted you to study archaeology. I grew up on a farm in southern New South Wales, the southern Riverina area. And from the time I was a really little kid, I just loved going outside and looking at the Milky Way in the night sky. And this really inspired me to want to become an astronomer or an astrophysicist, even better, because I wanted to find out how stars and galaxies came into being. And a critical factor in developing these interests was the fact that my father bought a set of science encyclopedias from a travelling encyclopedia seller, and this is a really tragic confession, but I used to read these encyclopedias as a kid, and I was just really inspired by learning about stars and planets and the formation of the solar system. And I suppose there was a sort of theme about wanting to learn where things come from because I also got very caught up in looking at dinosaurs and evolution and the origins of human behavior. So that led to my interest in archaeology. And I was very lucky because my mother never ever said to me, don't be ridiculous, you can't study that or you can't get a job in that. And and I know a lot of archaeology students today are discouraged because people say, how are you going to get a job? There are plenty of jobs. So she never did that. And she also bought me books about archaeology and about astronomy and astrophysics. So I was really lucky in that regard. And right up until I was at the end of high school, I entertained ambitions of doing both things. And when I went to university, I I enrolled in a degree that was primarily about archaeology, but I also did astronomy. And this, again, will mark me as the biggest nerd in the world. I voluntarily went to physics tutorials. (laughs) So that is truly sad, isn't it? Uh, Well, that's one of the beauties of just having all of these things available on campus. Well, that is true. And, you know, of course, the internet didn't exist in those days. And now, like, all of that information, all of these amazing resources online are out there. So if you do have interest in things that are incredibly disparate, like I did, like, you can just find out anything you need to know. It's really quite amazing. Fantastic. So after your first degree, you then completed your doctorate in archaeology. Can you tell us what led you to apply archaeology to our endeavours in space and your passion for the future of space exploration? 
Yeah, I ended up becoming a professional archaeologist working in heritage consulting and then I decided to do my PhD and I did that looking at museum collections of stone tools. So really, it it had nothing to do with space. People often assume that my PhD must have been connected, but it was a completely different topic. And when I finished it, I was in the situation that, you know, lots of people are in when they finish their PhD. It's like you're dirt poor. You are so tired of studying, you're kind of mentally exhausted and you just need to get on with your life somehow. So I took a job working on a very big heritage project in central Queensland and I was mainly working with Indigenous heritage and I had a team of six young Aboriginal women that I was working with. They were from each of the native title claim groups in the area and we were working bloody hard. We were were doing a lot of field work and we also had to sort of battle the attitudes of the engineers on the project we were working on, which often weren't very complimentary towards Aboriginal people, but that's another story, I guess. So I was totally immersed in Aboriginal heritage, and there was one particular event that suddenly made me change my direction. And this event was something really quite simple. It was summer, I had been in the field all day with my team, hot and tired and sweaty and I wanted to do what every person does when they get home from a hard day's physical work. I wanted a cold beer. So I got home that evening and went straight to my fridge and got a beautiful icy cold beer and I went and sat on my veranda and I had a gorgeous Queenslander house with massive verandas. And I was sitting on the veranda just looking up at the stars in pretty much the same way I did when I was a little kid on the farm. And just almost from nowhere, this thought process popped into my head. So so I'm looking at those little points of light, thinking, oh, you know, the stars, some of them are planets. Then I thought, well, some of them are actually satellites. Yes. And then I thought, well, some of them are actually old satellites, which kind of makes them archaeology. And then I thought, could you do an archaeology of space junk? And what are the heritage management issues related to space junk. And so I hadn't really thought about this stuff for decades, you know, and I didn't know the answer to any of those questions. But when I had those thoughts, it kind of was as if all of those things just clicked into place. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew this was the thing that I needed to do. So... (laughs) Then I had a really interesting process. I had to, not having really thought about space, I mean, I'd always read a lot of science fiction. A lot of archaeologists are really into science fiction. But I hadn't really followed space technology or space events closely, you know, no more than any other person for quite some time. So I had to learn. I had to do the equivalent of another PhD in a way. I had to educate and train myself in space stuff from kind of nothing. And then I had to, I came to the realisation that if I really wanted to do this, then by that time I was no longer consulting. I was actually working for the Heritage Department of a government agency in Queensland. And I realised that, you know, if I really wanted to pursue this, I was going to have to leave. I was going to have to try and get back to university. So that was kind of how it all happened. Wow. So let's go back now and continue to combine archaeology and space. Let's talk about Resat 1 being launched from Woomera in 1967 and how almost exactly 50 years ago in November, Australia was the third country after Russia and the US to launch into space from its own territory. What can you tell us about Australia's early space exploits with Resat 1? You know, I love the story of Resat 1 and it just astonishes me that it's not more widely known in the general Australian population, like being the third nation in space. That is huge. And why we don't celebrate that more? Well, I've got some theories about why we don't celebrate that more. And it is true. This year is the 50th anniversary of the launch of Resat 1. So basically, Resat 1 was a satellite developed at Woomera, scientific satellite. So it was meant to gather data that would help us understand the upper atmosphere. And it was also closely related to collaborations we were having with the US and uh, various European nations at the same time. So that's another aspect of the story I really like because it's 
the Cold War, it's the space race, and everybody tends to focus on the US and the USSR and their kind of conflict and adversarial relationships. But while all of that Cold War space stuff was going on, there was a huge amount of international cooperation, and Australia was right in the thick of all of that. So basically, the, the story was that our Woomera Australian space scientists had been working with the US uh, re-entry problems. So this is basically what happens when spacecraft comes back into the atmosphere. So they were testing different nose cone shapes on rockets to work out, you know, what actually did happen. And there were a number of the Redstone rockets, which was a rocket developed in the US by Vanna Von Braun in Huntsville, Alabama. Yep. And there were a few of these left over. And the US government basically said to Australia, hey, look, you know, we're not actually going to use these now that we've finished that program. You can use it if you want. And this is the bit that starts to kind of get exciting, I guess. So building a satellite is not a quick or straightforward process. And this is back in the 60s. So satellites are still pretty new technology. If you think Sputnik 1 is launched in 1957, so less than a decade Later, um, people are experimenting with this new technology and still trying to kind of work out where it can go. So anyway, the Australian government said, Tar, very much, that'll be great. And a whole bunch of space scientists leapt into action and they designed, tested and built the ResAT-1 satellite in one year. Wow. And that's quite extraordinary. Even now, that is a pretty big feat. And because they had to put it on the Redstone rocket, they basically had to make it to fit that rocket. So it looks, it's conical in shape. It's like a, a big elongated cone. So it's a, it's a satellite in the shape of a rocket nose cone. Yep. And you can see models of it. If you're lucky enough to be in Adelaide, there's actually a mock-up of it at the Defence Science and Technology Group out at um, Edinburgh. And there's also one at the fantastic Woomera Heritage Centre, but you do have to go out to Woomera to see that one. Um, So it's quite big. It's actually, I don't know, it's a metre and a half, maybe bigger. And it was meant to get a whole bunch of kind of upper atmosphere data that was going to be useful for the European Launcher Development Organisation, a precursor of the European Space Agency that was operating out of Woomera at the time. Anyway, so they built the satellite, they tested it, and then they put it on top of the rocket. They repainted the rocket and they drew a kangaroo, painted a kangaroo on the front. (laughs) Yep. And then they launched it in early November. It successfully reached orbit. It returned a whole bunch of data. And then in 1968, it re-entered the atmosphere. So it's not up there any longer. But it's an extraordinary event to think that Australia became the third nation in space. And what you mentioned before is really important. It's the third nation to launch from our own territory because France launched Asterix 1 in 1965. They launched it from Algeria, which was a French dominion, but it wasn't actually in France. So a lot of people will say, look, doesn't really count. Reset 1 is um, the fourth, not the third. And there's also an Italian uh, launch that many people say comes before, but, you know, everybody gets debates this and gets set up about it. I'm quite comfortable to say Australia was the, launched the third satellite from its own territory. So we were players in the height of the space age. And what really kills me and a lot of us working in space is that we're not there anymore. We let that go. We dropped out of visibility. And a lot of people, you know, just sort of like, what happened? Like, why why did we let this happen when we had so much expertise? And when we have the Woomera launch range, which is a world-class facility, why aren't we doing more in space? Okay, well, let's dig into that a little bit and talk about our space policy. As an observer from the outside, I'm pleased that after seemingly having a good long nap for 50 years, we at least now have some space policy frameworks in place. And let's look at our recent satellite utilisation policy. Its most striking feature is that it says more about what we won't do, like our own launches or do any serious explorations or put humans in space. This tells me we're not really serious about space and that we'll continue to rely on more adventurous and entrepreneurial nations and we'll continue to pay through the nose to support our national interests in things like agriculture and mining, which rely increasingly on GPS and reliable, up-to-date data mapping. 
and more importantly, our young graduates and entrepreneurs who yearn for careers in space will be lost offshore. What's your insider view on the impact of our current satellite utilisation policy, Alice? Well, I think everything you say is true. The policy is quite carefully worded to draw a line around the things Australia is not going to get involved in while attempting to be positive and supportive of the things that are seen as possible avenues for Australia. So launch is definitely one that is off the table. However, we do have at the moment a company, a space company called Gilmore Space in Queensland, who is working on Australian launch capabilities. So, you know, maybe this isn't going to be the case forever. We also do not do human spaceflight. This is an interesting one. I mean, there's been a debate going for decades about uh, human versus robotic space exploration, and human spaceflight is massively expensive, and there's a sense in which Australia doesn't need to do it. But if, for example, we joined the European Space Agency, they have invited us four times previously, then Australians could be um, astronauts as part of that. And I think, I, I guess I agree, I think we don't want to focus on human spaceflight, but it doesn't mean we can't participate, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't support Australians who would like to do that. Yep. And one avenue is certainly becoming a member of European Space Agency. Otherwise, the Australians who've been in space have had to resign their Australian citizenship and become Americans, or maybe they weren't actually, they lived in Australia, but they weren't Australian citizens to begin with. The satellite utilisation policy is particularly interesting because after it was made, and we had extensive consultation about it, and it's, I mean, it has limitations, but it's, it's not that bad, really. But there was a change of government, and the policy kind of vanished, and you kind of weren't allowed to talk about it. And then and there were other things happening, like when the, the Sp- Australian Space Activities Act came up for review last year, and this was a very positive thing, because the government had realised that the while the intentions of that act were good ones, they're mainly around uh, safety and limiting the government's liability of something, you know, a rocket blows up or goes badly wrong. Those are all important things. Yeah. It also was an impediment to the new developing space industries, particularly around CubeSats and small satellites. Yes. So it came up for review, and a few of us were wondering about what the relationship of the Act to the satellite utilisation policy actually was, because you kind of weren't the satellite utilisation policy hadn't really been followed or used in any significant way. But in recent, so just in the last month, a new expert panel has been convened to talk about Australia's future in space and the satellite utilisation policy is now being drawn into that discussion and is being taken seriously, I guess. So, I mean, as a policy, it was, I guess, part of it was sort of aspirational, part of it was telling us what we couldn't do and part of it was sort of defining Australia as a space nation and many of us thought that it kind of really lacked ambition I guess because this has been going on for decades now and it's been irrespective of which party was in government at the time and numerous numerous reviews and studies and have said yes Australia needs to take space seriously because exactly as you say we buy in a lot of stuff that we could get ourselves we rely on free stuff and we don't give much back and it makes us vulnerable it makes us very vulnerable so at the moment where it's looking kind of positive. It's, I'm not certain we'll get a space agency necessarily, but at the moment it's kind of the mo- most positive it's been for a while in recognising that Australia actually needs to have something solid. It can't just be the freeloader anymore. Fair enough. So you've got a positive take in that we're in line to get a visionary national space program and possibly even a space agency. Possibly even. The first step, and this is what the Space Industry Association of Australia and numerous of my senior colleagues um, argue, is that we need to have a national space program first. We need to work out exactly what it is that we need to do. And a space agency may be part of making that happen. And it might not be as well, but having a national space program is going to be the first step. And another point you mentioned, and I think this is so critical as well, just a couple of weeks ago I was at a conference called Aerospace Futures 
and it's for young people coming up wanting to get into the aerospace industries. And so we've got a fair bit of the, the aero going on, not so much of the space. So a lot of these talented young people end up going and working in other countries and we lose that talent. We also have an incredible bank of knowledge. All the people who worked on those space programs, who worked on Resat, who worked at Woomera, worked with the European Launcher Development Organisation, they're still around. So sure, technology has moved on and the world's very different, but we should be utilising the incredible store of knowledge and experience that we have here from those people. They're they're still here. They haven't gone away. And that's something I think, it it relates to my interest in heritage, I guess. It's not just about uh, a heritage satellite or rocket or or launch site. It's also about the people and what they know and what they can bring to our new and growing space industry. Fantastic, Alice. Well, if you'll excuse the pun, let's dig into archaeology again. There's some great milestones in archaeology. The discovery of 3.2 million year old bones of Lucy in Africa. Last week's evidence of humans in northern Australia 65,000 years ago. We've got Mungo Lady and Mungo Man in Australia about 30,000 years ago. We've got King Tut's tomb in Egypt. Is the 40 year anniversary of the launch of Voyager 1 spacecraft a similarly significant milestone in space archaeology? You know, I think it is. I think you framed that quite beautifully. I think we can look at something like Voyager 1 as the same kind of moment or event or material evidence of something that's like a cultural turning point or watershed. I love the Voyager spacecraft, I have to say, and I have a particular soft spot for Voyager 2 because everyone tends to kind of overlook it. But when you look at what it means, if you line up all of those different things and you think, what does it mean for human culture and human history when you have something like that? And the two Voyager spacecraft, I think, are very similar things. They're objects that capture a certain moment in human technological evolution, if if evolution's a bit of a loaded word, but it kind of is evolution, I guess. And they've done something extraordinary. They've taken the extent of human engagement with the solar system right out to the edge of the solar system. So you can now say that the solar system is a human place. The entire solar system is kind of been created by human activities in space. And the voyages, of course, are also fascinating because they carry the golden records. Yes. And they're like time capsules of the 1970s. They express what Carl Sagan and his team thought was important in the 1970s to maybe, you know, the kind of dream is at some point, billions of years in the future, some sentient alien race will fall across one of the voyages. And for them, it will be like an archaeological excavation. They'll be taking the voyager apart piece by piece to work out the technology, not just the technology, but to work out what humans were like. There's all these little clues in Voyager that say something about what kind of species humans are. So it it will become like an archaeological excavation of the future. So that's one scenario. Like It would be lovely to think that one day Voyager will deliver its message to some alien species. But for the moment, it's a time capsule for us. Every decade that passes, we look back on the things that were chosen to be on the golden records. Yes. And they mean different things. Yep. They, we can tell something different about what people thought about space and thought about humans in the 1970s. So that makes them absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, I agree. I think the Voyagers, they're unique because they're so far away and because we're still talking to them. The Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex is one of three tracking stations in the world that talks to the Voyagers. So they represent a particular time in technology and particular vision of what we thought we were doing in space and they have that explicit cultural message as well so yeah I think they're right up there with all of those other archaeological moments Yes, we interviewed Richard Stevenson from Tintin Villa last week and it was a fantastic talk about how he's still in contact with the Voyagers. Now, can you tell us about your current project on the archaeology of the International Space Station Well, you know, now that we're doing it, it seems like such an obvious thing. It's a wonder that nobody thought of it before. But this is basically an idea that came about because there's really only a very few space archaeologists in the world. 
and not very many that focus solely on looking at space material culture. But one of these people is my colleague Justin Walsh from Chapman University in California. And a couple of years ago, NASA put out a call for astronauts and they explicitly said, you know, we're looking for people from these kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of things. And they explicitly said, but no archaeologists. Things and <laughs> Justin saw that and thought, what's going on here? If they want geologists, which they said was a fine background, why don't they want archaeologists? We kind of do a lot of the same things. We work in remote areas. We're very practical. We're used to solving problems. We're used to bringing all of our sort of disciplinary knowledge to understanding and interpreting the environment we're in. So he decided he wanted to prove to NASA that archaeology was a valuable discipline. And this is where he started talking to me and the idea was that space archaeologists have looked at the moon and Mars, Earth orbit, Venus and deep space probes in different parts of the solar system but none of us had ever actually looked at people in a space habitat and basically there's only one of those at the moment and that's the International Space Station. The other space stations are only occupied you know from time to time like Tiangong 2 and when Justin suggested this it just seemed it was like of course this is the perfect study for archaeologists and thing about the International Space Station so from the beginning of human spaceflight psychology and physiology have been massive areas of study because you want astronauts to be physically healthy and capable of working in space and you want astronauts to not go you know a little bit bonkers and (laughs) turn into some science fiction film where everybody dies a horrible death So these have been really important aspects of how different people have studied living in space. And there's been a lot of interest in like how you design a space habitat to take advantage of the fact that you're in microgravity. So the space station, they want to do experiments with what happens in microgravity. They don't want it to have gravity because there are ways of making artificial gravity, which wouldn't be very pleasant, but you know, you could do it. So living in microgravity, you have to reconcile all of these different things. You have to make people feel comfortable and at home so they can do their very expensive work. Like I think an an hour's work on the International Space Station costs like millions of dollars. But they are living in microgravity and that's the whole point. So what we wanted to do was look at how astronauts and cosmonauts use the material things around them not just to do basic, you know, eating and sleeping and washing and then all the scientific experiments, but how they use them to create a culture. And so from the archaeological perspective, this means... So so an example is I was just recently looking at snaplock bags on the International Space Station. So one of the astronauts, Sandy Magnus, used to use snaplock bags as mixing bowls. She, She tried to cook food, not really cook, but create food that wasn't, you know, the pre-packaged food that they have to eat for months. So she's cooking on the International Space Station and she was using snaplock bags as mixing bowls. So this is an artifact. It's a physical object that has certain uses it's well adapted for. And she was using it for something that it hadn't been designed for or, or that hadn't been thought about. So she's undertaking a sort of a creative act using a very ordinary artifact around the base station. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, engineers or space medicine people or space psychologists probably wouldn't pay any attention to. But for an archaeologist, we're interested in, so how many snap-block bags are on the International Space Station? How often do they get used for something they weren't intended for? And what's the kind of social impact of that? Are they doing things that are maybe not entirely approved of? Are they doing creative things that contribute to their well-being? So in the case of cooking, it was an effort to make some special foods, some not standard space station food, that would give people a little sense of occasion and event and a, a feeling like they were celebrating as they might on Earth. So it's just a plastic bag in the end, but its function was to contribute to something socially very important, that, that idea of the astronauts feeling at home. So I'm probably explaining this in a bit of a convoluted way, but that's the kind of thing that an archaeological approach would look at that's different to what people normally study on the International Space Station. That's fantastic, Alice. It means that from now on, I'll be looking at snaplock bags and I'll be seeing Grecian urns. Oh, that's a beautiful analogy. That is perfect. <laughs> okay, now the microphone is all yours, Alice, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in our quest for space, for education, for outreach, 
It's your platform now. Thank you, Brendan. Well, something that is at the core of a lot of what I do, both in my research and in the things that I write, is the fact that we have a principle that space is the common heritage of humanity. And this is established in the United Nations treaties and conventions, that everybody has the right to access space and everybody has the right to benefit from space. At the present point in time, this principle is actually under threat. So we have the rise of commercial and private space enterprises and they want quite naturally to do things like, you know, mine the asteroids or mine the moon. And this isn't going to happen anytime soon because we do not have the technology. But because of this, you could say that in the Cold War, capitalism won. And so now we're on an uber-capitalist path to regard space a resource to be exploited and to create profit from. At the moment, the Outer Space Treaty prevents that happening, but lots of people want to get rid of it so that they go and make profit from space. Now, that's okay. I don't actually have a problem with that. What I do have a problem with is the fact that this could turn into a runaway effect where that principle that everybody has the right to access space no longer exists, and we get a whole society which is divided between the wealthy people who have access to space and the poor people who are left back on Earth. This is a very real danger, and in order to make sure it doesn't happen, we need to make sure we, us here now, regular people, need to make sure we have a voice at the table. And this is one reason why Australia getting more active in space is good, because it enables us Australians to have a voice. So we need to know what's going on, and we need to say when we're not happy with the direction things are going on. And if we don't do that, this is what's going to happen. Those private corporations are going to say, oops, sorry, I own this bit of the moon now, and I own the profits that come from it. So this is something I feel so passionately about is that everyday people need to have their voices. Even they don't have to have the same opinion as me. They can have whatever opinion they like, but we need to be heard. These decisions can't be left up to largely aerospace engineers who perhaps aren't always across the social nuances. And as part of that, something else I feel really passionately about is ensuring that Indigenous people have a voice at that table as well. So there's a really interesting metaphor that you'll see a lot in space literature, and it's a contrast between what's called Stone Age and the Space Age. And in this metaphor, Indigenous people across the world are left on the Stone Age side. Yes. And this obviously speaks to me as an archaeologist because this is something the Stone Age is meant to be about archaeology, and it's not a term archaeologists use anymore. because it has those implications. So in everything that I research, I try to make sure that I don't overlook contributions of Indigenous people and that I try to make sure in my work as part of the Space Industry Association of Australia, I try to make sure that these issues aren't overlooked either. So these are my two messages, I guess. If the world turns into this us and them, the haves and have not, we have to make sure that Indigenous people are not automatically left on the have-not side with the rest of it. So we need to be active, we need to be informed, and we need to make our voices heard. That's fabulous. That's astonishing, Dr. Alice Gorman. Thank you so much, Alice. It's been fabulous speaking with you. I just love the irony that if we want to find out more about our future in space and on Earth, that we've been so well informed by your expertise in space archaeology. Thank you so much, Alice. Brendan, it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you for your very insightful question. That was Dr. Alice Gorman and you can follow at Dr. Space Junk on Twitter. She does some fantastic posts. Next up, we cross over to Adelaide to talk with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave in What's Up, Doc? <laughs> Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's things going? Very well, thanks, Ian. It's been very generous of you to send that wild weather over from Adelaide. (laughs) Yes, it's like that. Now, did you know that today we're celebrating something special, Ian? No, I didn't know we're celebrating something special. What are we celebrating, Brendan? We're celebrating 10,000 downloads of Astrophysics. 10,000 downloads. That's pretty special. It is. 
It's a nice round number, and it's certainly in the tens of kilos of downloads. Yes, well, the website ran out of electrons, and I had to stoke up some more. (laughs) Very good, Ian. Well, we better stick to our project here. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? What's up in the sky this week? Well, lots of things. One of the things that's up in the sky won't be exactly this week, but I'll, I'm going to talk about that a bit later. Yep. For those of you who have been following what's going on in the Western Horizon shortly after twilight, Mercury is now reaching its peak distance from the horizon. For those of us in the Southern Hemisphere, we're going to get a very good view. For those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, Mercury is going to be reasonably visible above the horizon, but it'll still be relatively low. But for us in the Southern Hemisphere, we're going to see Mercury really high above the horizon. In fact, it'll be so high that you'll be able to see it above the horizon until after astronomical twilight. That's an hour and a half after sunset. Although it will be very low above the horizon, then you'll need a fairly clear horizon to see it properly. For those of you who are not so clear horizons, if you look to your west about an hour after sunset, Mercury will be very, very visible. And then after this week, it'll start heading back towards the horizon. Unfortunately, there's nothing interesting around Mercury at the moment. There's no bright stars or moon or anything. It's just Mercury gleaming to itself in the distance. But it's still worth having a look at. It's one of the rare occasions where you can easily see what's happening to this bright planet. Very good. If you look just above Mercury, you'll now be able to see Jupiter and the bright star Speaker. Now, Jupiter and Speaker have been getting closer and closer, and as they're getting closer and closer to the horizon, so it's relatively easy to sweep your eye out from Mercury to see the pair of Speaker and Jupiter. Over the coming weeks, Speaker and Jupiter will come closer and closer. So that's something very nice to look at. It does mean that an hour after sunset, if you look to the western horizon, you'll see two bright planets and a bright star nicely lined up in the evening, looking very nice. Later on in this month, Jupiter and Speaker will be visited by the crescent moon, but we'll talk about that when the time comes. At the moment, just the, the, the two bright planets and the bright star lined up in the western evening sky an hour after sunset looks really nice. Very good. Let's talk about Saturn. It is now its past opposition, where it was the biggest and brightest, but uh, Saturn is really quite nice at the moment. It's still in a very good position for uh, imaging. It's still quite high above the northern horizon for a large chunk of the night. It's now not visible all night long, but for those of us who don't feel like getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, that's pretty good. (laughs) For those of us who prefer to do their stargazing in the early evening, Saturn is is an an ideal position from about 9 o'clock to about 11 o'clock for very good imaging. Those of you who have small telescopes will see the rings of Saturn very beautifully. And if you're just looking with your own eye, you'll see that Saturn is sitting right on top of one of the dark rifts of the Milky Way, looking very nice. Saturn's really a nice object to view. If we turn our eyes to the morning skies, and if you're getting up around about 5 o'clock in the morning, then Venus is putting on a nice show at the moment. Although around about the 16th, you'll see the crescent moon will be very close to the Pleiades and Aldebaran, the bright star there. Then on the 19th, the thin crescent moon will be just above Venus, and that will be a very nice thing to look at. Venus is now heading towards the horizon. It's still dominating the morning sky, but it's now heading closer to the horizon. And over the coming weeks, it'll be getting closer and closer to the horizon and becoming harder to see. Certainly on the 19th, it would be a very nice sight with the thin crescent moon just above it. And it'll make a long triangle with the bright star Procyon, the, the brightest star of the little dog that accompanies the hunter Orion. Yep. Also during the week, you'll see that Venus was previously making a very nice triangle with the bright star Aldebaran and the bright star Betelgeuse. Venus is moving through the constellation of Gemini at the moment. So after a few days, that triangle is gone. Then it'll start forming a nice triangle with Betelgeuse and Procyon. So for those of you who are interested in geometric positions in the sky, you'll see a very nice triangle formed by Betelgeuse and Venus and Procyon. And then then on the 19th, you'll have the thin crescent moon just above Venus, making that morning view very beautiful indeed. Excellent. 
One other thing that is coming up is the Perseid meteor shower. Now, many people have been seeing things on the internet going, this will be the brightest meteor shower for X number of years or even in our lifetime. And that's basically nonsense. <laughs> Perseid meteor shower is a recurring meteor shower. And we'll see this on the morning of August 13th in, a, in the Southern Hemisphere. For those of America and Europe, it's more likely to see it on the morning of the 12th. Uh, because of datelines and things. But anyway, <laughs> the 12th and 13th of August will be the time when it peaks. Under the best conditions, the maximum rate of the Perseids is about 150 meteors per hour. But that's the best rate, and you'll never see that. But that's the rate you would see if the Perseids were directly overhead, really dark skies and no mist or trees or anything in the way. In the real world, the Perseids meteor shower is not directly overhead. There's always a little bit of gut in the sky and there's always things around the horizon puttering up. So you can't see that amount. But even so, you can expect to see about a meteor a minute, which is you know, pretty nice. Unfortunately, this year, the waning moon is above the Perseids and it will be almost in direct line of sight. So we'll see much fewer meteors. It'll still be quite nice for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, and it's worth getting up out of bed for, because you do have to get up around about midnight to have a good view. But you'll still see somewhere in the order of two, a meteor every two to three minutes, which is, uh, which is not bad, which is not bad. But it won't be thousands of shooting stars. For those of us in the Southern Hemisphere, the Perseids never really get high enough. For everybody in Australia or anyone in a similar latitude to Australia. If you're below the latitude of Brisbane, you may as well not get out of bed. You won't see anything. Although for Australians, the best views will be seen from Darwin. Very good. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us? I actually have two tangents for you. One is a follow-up to a tangent that's been running for some time. And this is our friend, the next target of New Horizons, 2014 MU69. Now, for those of you who have been following the saga of our previous interviews, NASA has set up a series of observations of MU69. The first involved lots of amateurs and professionals forming a fence across the occultation line in South Africa. What they were doing was looking at MU69 going in front of a faint star and trying to deduce the size and shape and whether there's any debris around the object from how it blocked the light of the star. Yep. The first try in South Africa didn't pick up an occultation and there was lots of speculation over why that was, whether or not it was because they got the orbit wrong or because it had the different shape to what they expected and there were several ideas. And it turns out that the answer is some of the above. Later attempts to pick up the occultation using improved orbital descriptions using the Sophia Flying Observatory and uh, another attempt in South America picked up an occultation, as I mentioned last week, and this week the results have been released. And it turns out that MU69 is either very long and thin, like a really stretched out football, what we call an oblate spheroid, or it may be a binary object, two, two objects very close together, or even something like the rubber duck that uh, is the Comet 67P. Remember uh, oh, yes. the rubber duck? Ah, uh, yes, Cherimov Gerasimenko. It's basically two lobes which are fused together, or two large lumps of ice which have been fused together at one point, rather than being a, a single object. And so MU69 is either something very long and thin, like some of the trans-Neptunian objects that we've discovered, which yep. have really bizarre long, thin shapes rotating quite rapidly, or it's a contact binary. So MU69 is looking really, really interesting. It's going to be a very interesting target when the, the probe flies by. And again, an important part of this as being a tangent is because this was a, a professional and amateur collaboration and one of the people I know from the Comet Group volunteered to go down and help out with the observations of MU69. So it's a good example of how professionals and amateurs can work together using very simple equipment to find out something really amazing. And so I think everyone will be really on the edge of their seats when New Horizon flies past MU69. Something to look forward to. There's something to look forward to. But that brings me up into my second tangent. 
and I talk a lot about uh, amateur and amateur professional science, uh, science collaborations and citizen science. And unless you've been living under a rock, you will know that on August the 21st, there is going to be a total eclipse of the sun crossing the United States. If there is someone who doesn't know this, uh, <laughs> let me know how you managed to avoid knowing this. This is probably one of the best known astronomical events for uh, many years. At the moment, thousands of people are making their way to the, um, the shadow line and a couple of my internet friends are heading out there to try and catch the uh, eclipse. Uh, Damien Peach, the famous astrophotographer, will be out there trying to catch the eclipse. And in a sense, the eclipse is a special case of an occultation, only bigger, more fancy and a lot more spectacular. Uh, seeing the sun, the moon move in front of the sun and block out its light is a lot more spectacular than seeing a uh, tiny telescope visible only um, a star wink out. But why am I bringing this up? Because this is an example of citizen science again. One of the uh, key pieces of evidence uh, that's, that showed that Einstein's uh, theories were on the right path was an eclipse, an international observed eclipse where they took photographs of the sky before and during the eclipse looking for a displacement of stars by the gravitational field around the sun or rather the, gravi the uh, gravitational well around the sun. Yep. So what a number of amateurs are doing this time, they're trying to recreate that experiment and they're going to measure the position of stars close to the sun during the eclipse and then they're going to wait some months and take a photograph of that same area without the sun and then measure the distance between the stars before and after you have a rather massive object, i.e. the sun, in the same position and uh, then doing the same sorts of calculations that Arthur Eddington did back in 1918 to show that gravitational uh, wells or rather that large objects distort space-time around them. For some people, they've already taken uh, photographs of the fields where the sun, uh, sun will be, and so they're ready to go as soon as the, the eclipse happens. Again, this shows how relatively simple things amateurs can either directly contribute to new knowledge or reinforce some of the classic findings of, of astrophysics. Again, because this is Astrophys and the Astrophys podcast, I thought it was a good idea to highlight this piece of citizen science looking at one of the fundamental issues around astrophysics. Gravitational lensing has grown into a fantastic tool that's used in lots of applications now. Well, yes, we use it to do everything from weighing galaxies to detecting exoplanets. And redoing Arthur Eddington's experiments uh, won't add new knowledge, but it just will be a way of, uh, of amateurs to be able to show they can replicate uh, a classic piece of science and demonstrate for themselves. But as you say, I mean, we use gravitational lensing for so much. And gravitational lensing, of course, works not only with visible light, it also works with such things as radio waves and some of the uh, experiments that have been used to confirm the uh, Einsteinian distortion of space-time by our sun have used intense radio sources rather than light. So because then you don't have to worry so much about an eclipse. You can do these measurements in the absence of an eclipse. Of course, you have to worry about the radio emissions of the sun itself. But if you choose an appropriately intense stellar radio source, you'll be able to check the position reasonably accurately despite the sun's own radio waves. Fantastic. And we wish our American friends all the best. I'm sure they'll have a fantastic time watching that eclipse. And there is something eerie about entering totality. There's something really amazing. It's a wonderful experience. Yes, I've experienced two total solar eclipses now. The first one was down in uh, South Australia during the, uh, during the South Australian eclipse. And the, the sky goes dark, all the birds go quiet. It's, it's, and it starts getting cool and it's just a really, it is a really eerie feeling. And the, the way that the colours in the sky and the corona around the moon, is, it's, it's amazing. The other total eclipse that I experienced was in Cairns, where unfortunately a cloud went over the, the uh, sun just as eclipse was about, the total eclipse was about to start. But you still have that entire eerie thing of light change. You have all, 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 you had all this light streaming through the clouds, and then it blinks off, 
Yes. And the, the, uh, the again, the birds stop, everything stops. Even with the sun behind the cloud, you get a very definite uh, eclipse feel. So it's like people looking at what the corona is likely to be like and whether or not the corona will be extensive this time around. And so it's possible that there will be a quite uh, significant corona uh, around the sun this time. And so that would make the viewing even more amazing. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's a pleasure to be on, Brendan, and uh, I feel rather chuffed that we've uh, managed to reach and, and uh, exceed the 10,000 downloads barrier. So that's getting out and talking to so many people and hopefully it's getting them to think about getting out and doing some of the sorts of things we're talking about and getting involved in citizen science, not just sitting and going, wow, that's really cool, but going out and being involved in something cool as well. Thanks, Ian. You can follow at Ian F. Musgrave on Twitter. Next up, the Astrophys News Headlines. First up, from Cosmos magazine, by Cathal O'Connell, a brief history of ideas about the size and shape of the universe. Space is big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemists, but that's just peanuts to space. A quote by Douglas Adams in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In one sense, the edge of the universe is easy to mark out. It's a distance a beam of light could have travelled since the beginning of time. Anything beyond is impossible for us to observe, and so outside our so-called observable universe. You might guess that the distance from the centre of the universe to the edge is simply the age of the universe, 13.8 billion years multiplied by the speed of light, 13.8 billion light years. But space has been stretching all this time, and just as an airport walkway extends the stride of a walking passenger, the moving walkway of space extends the stride of light beams. It turns out that in the 13.8 billion years since the beginning of time, a light beam could have travelled 46.3 billion light years from its point of origin in the Big Bang. If you imagine this beam tracing a radius, the observable universe is a sphere whose diameter is double that, 92.6 billion light years. So if you want your brain stretched a bit, find that article in Cosmos magazine. Just have a look for how big is the universe. Cosmos. Next, a press release from NASA. NASA has selected nine proposals under its Explorers program that will return science about the sun and space environment and fill science gaps between the agency's larger missions. Eight for focused scientific investigations and one for technological development of instrumentation. The broad scope of the investigations illustrates the many vital and specialised research areas that must be explored simultaneously in the area of heliophysics, which is a study of how the sun affects space and the space environment of planets. Each heliophysics small explorer mission will receive $1.25 million to conduct an 11-month mission. They are Mechanisms of energetic mass ejection from the sun Focusing optical X-ray solar images. Multi-slit solar explorer. The tandem reconnection and cusp electrodynamics reconnaissance satellites, known as tracers. Studies of the corona and heliosphere, called PUNCH. The sun radio interferometer space experiment, called SUNRISE. And the atmospheric wave experiment, OR. That's awesome, NASA. Follow at Astrophears on Twitter. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave!